Anxiety is just a smoke detector. It's not the problem. It's just letting you know there's fires in your house somewhere. And usually those fires are relational in nature. Your body's detected that you're alone, that your marriage falling apart, that you don't have any friends, that your boss isn't safe. It may be detecting that you're not in control of your own life. The agency we talked about, it may be letting you know that, hey, uh, you have lost autonomy, right? It, it, it's letting you know you're not safe. There's danger somewhere, right? Underneath that is we have a culture that says, if you feel bad, if you feel anxious, that's the problem to be solved. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. If you, that's like hearing your smoke detector in your kitchen and just racing in there and climbing up on the ladder and pulling the batteries out. You stop the alarm. Congratulations. And your house burns down around you, which is what's happening to us right now in this culture. Hey everybody, Dr. Josh Axe here. Welcome to the Growth Lab podcast, where each and every week we talk about the science behind how to grow yourself, your health, your wealth, and take your career and finances to the next level. Today we've got a guest I'm really excited about it. it's Dr. John Deloney, and he is a PhD in psychology. And we're going to talk about how to overcome limiting beliefs. We're going to talk about how to build a mindset that can overcome anything and a whole lot more. Also, John actually just wrote a book. We're going to talk about that a little bit today as well. But Dr. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. And I think it's important to note my PhD is in counseling, which only matters if you're nerds and it's <laughs> below the hierarchy of psychologists. So there you go. I think it's, well, listen, you know, I think generally you help people with <laughs> that's right, that's their right. personal problems. Right, and so it's right. very, uh, very good. You know, I've been watching you recently on YouTube and just so impressed. You know, you do part of what you do is a call-in show. Mm. People calling in with, I mean, just a number of issues, everything from depression to anxiety and numerous mental health issues. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about what are some of the fastest growing health problems across the board that you see and deal with today? I... So when I first started the show, people would call in and ask about, you know, my husband cheated on me. What do I do? Or I've just got diagnosed with these three things and I don't know what to do next. And I found myself because I don't have a radio background. I would ask, why are you calling me? Like, you don't even call your friends. <laughs> Every person had the exact same answer. They said, John, I got nobody. Mm -hmm. And so. I think the underlying pathology under a lot of what's going on right now is that we've created the loneliest generation in human history and our bodies are spinning off in a thousand different directions. And diagnostically we're playing whack-a-mole with them. Oh, you got this, you got this, you got this, you got this. And those of us nerds are really impressed with our manuals and our diagnostic guides. Mm -hmm. But I think the underlying pathology is pretty similar, which is our bodies are not designed to do life by ourselves. They're not designed to sit two inches apart, but be 2000 miles away from our spouses on I'm on my device. She's on hers or what Yeah, we've created a world. We just can't do this. And our kids walk in and head to the room, shut the door and they get on their screens. And the only interactions we have is on Saturday mornings when some soccer coach is telling us we have to drive nine hours to the travel soccer game for a yeah. 14 year old. Like we've just created this insane world. And, um, so I think underlying all of it is, I mean, depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, I'm really starting to lean towards thinking those are a lot more similar diagnostically underneath all the smoke mm -hmm. than we like to separate them in our ch by chapter, right? Uh, or by by diagnostic code, right? I think the underlying pathology is, is becoming clearer and clearer that this poison's coming out of the same well. I want to get into that, but I also want to say, you mentioned ADHD. Mm -hmm. I was watching this interview with Jordan Peterson recently, mm -hmm. And he was quoted saying, I think ADHD, generally speaking, 90 some percent of the time is a rubbish diagnosis. Mm. 
So um, I agree with them. Um, I think we have tortured a generation of little boys and told them, you will sit in this classroom and you will sit in that plastic chair and I will lecture you under a um, education system. My first PhD is in education. So I grew up in that world where, um, and I, I remember the studies in grad school when it was like, hey, teachers call on boys more than girls. Teachers, you have to fix that. And they went, mm-hmm. okay. And they smashed that pendulum to the other side. And there was truth to those studies. It was true. Rambunctious, fun, yeah. wild little boys were the ones that the teachers called on. Um, and you and I both know anxiety, uh, ADHD is expressed often in girls. They get quiet and yeah. they retract, right? And boys get bananas. But we've just beaten down a generation of, of little boy. Um, I asked, I was with a mentor of mine, a guy that was really one of my psychology professors and my crisis guy. He trained me on crisis response stuff. We were having dinner. This is about a year ago. And I said, hey, I'm getting a lot of questions about ODD, oppositional defiant disorder with kids. And I said, is that real? And he looked at me and he said something very instructive. He said, yes, and you've never seen it. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, until you've been in a psych ward and there's six grown men holding down a five-year-old, mm-hmm. it's very real. But like the DSM was designed for researcher to talk to researcher. So we're both going to study depression. We're all going to make sure we're using the same word for the same thing. Yeah, It's also used to help the mental health profession feel more medicalized so they could get insurance payments. Mm. And it does help with treatment plans, right? Yeah. It was never intended to be released to the wild. Wow. So that you can Google what's wrong with my kid and label your kid as a narcissistic, hyperactive, like make up the, you know, these over diagnostics. So it got out of the cage and now we call each other. He's a narcissist. She's bipolar. She, and we're just lobbing grenades at each other and it's not a helpful way to do life. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things is I started looking at ADD as well is that oftentimes where ADHD is oftentimes there's personalities associated with it. Right. And in, in terms of like, Hey, you're more extroverted or <laughs> you, you tend to, uh, you know, be more disagreeable, mm-hmm. right? There's some of these mm-hmm. qualities where hey, maybe it's a personality, you know, and I think a lot of times you see, you know, it tends to be maybe more creatives. It could be actors. It could be musicians. It could be people that are actually maybe born to be leaders that maybe get well, some of those. Well, that's like, so I, I, if you Google ADHD, my picture's in the Wikipedia page, right? I mean, that's, that's my whole life. Wow. And I used to beg my dad. I begged my father who he was a homicide detective and a SWAT hostage negotiator. He was a bad dude. I used to beg him for medication when I was a kid. Cause I knew that I wasn't experiencing the world. Like my colleague, my yeah. classmate, yeah. he knew it. And he always said, no, we're going to figure it out. Wow. And so I, as a grown up, it's my superpower. And I have somebody who makes sure I'm where I need to be. Right. And yeah. I have had to do a lot of work way upstream so that I can show up because my ADHD is a context. It's not an excuse. Yeah. It gives me a picture, but I still got to show up on time. I still got to be present with my wife and my kids. And so, um, it's not an excuse to not show up in the world, Yeah, but we take these kids and we say, here's actors, here's musicians, here's politicians, here's CEOs, folks who, are able to see the big picture and bounce from thing to thing to thing and laser in for a long period of time. That's right. We make their idols ADHD folks, and then we punish them for that spirit that would lead you to some of these, That's these, right. these positions, right? And so it's tough. It's real, real tough. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to bag on the education system. We're trying to do what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, we've just created a quagmire. It's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I have a very, well, a, you know, s- similar story in terms of when I was a kid, I got diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. They wanted to put me on Ritalin. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted it. My mom was like, no, I don't want you to get on mm-hmm. drugs. And then later on, uh, right before I went into college, you know, wrote me a prescription, gave me Adderall, took it a couple of days and felt like this is really changing me. Mm. It's changing my personality. Stop mm-hmm. taking it. But I remember it's the craziest thing. ADHD drugs. I remember being in college mm-hmm. and, uh, the number of college students that were taking ADHD drugs just that weren't diagnosed with ADHD was unbelievable. The last number I heard yeah. was 75%, three out of four. And I was a Dean of students at a law school. It's in just sitting with my colleagues across the country. It's, it's terrifying. Wow. And you're talking about the high performers are, are, and you know what amphetamines do to yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, we're just baking their brains. Right? Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a, um, and you also know the hell that is getting off amphetamines. I mean, we've yeah, created a, I've, yeah. just a disaster, right? Um, but you have law students and you've got med students and you've got, you know, doctoral students. You've got these folks who are our next generation's next leaders. You've got these tech guys who are running 24 hours, 365. Um, there's going to be, a, you, you can't just smash one side of the teeter-totter without the other side coming up. There's going to be a price to pay for it. Yeah. Wow. Well, let, let's talk about one of the things I always try and focus on, and I know you're very similar, is that... Yeah, we got dark quick, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you know, when, when I look at the medical profession, and yeah. whether it be counseling, psychology, uh, mainstream medicine, you know, everything has become so... I'm just treating the symptom. I'm going to treat the superficial thing and band-aid this thing. And one of the things I love about what you're all about is let's get to the deepest root cause that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about issues like, cause you said there's a lot of similarities with depression, anxiety, even ADHD. What, what is that commonality that maybe the overlap between some of those issues? And then what's, what's really the root cause of some of these things that we can start to uncover? Um, a lot of my thinking on this was originally informed by Gabor Matei's work. He, he was the first one to start having these conversations about trauma but ultimately, um, here's the way I describe it. So um, let's say you have a garage or a basement and you're making candles in your basement. Yeah. And which we all know to be true, right? I'm just kidding. But <laughs> I, in my basement, I'm repairing motorcycles. And in my wife's basement, she is, um, I don't know, she's painted. She's a painter. Yeah. So that's genetics. My genetics have a bunch of flammable things in the basement. Yours are going to smell. It's going to be beautiful when it catches fire and hers will be pretty flammable, but um, not explosive. And then all three of our houses catch on fire. We all get dropped in the same class with the same teacher saying, if you move, I'm kicking you out of here. And then if your kid gets kicked out of class, you're out of school. And mm-hmm. both of our parents are working 24, seven, 365 because rent is so expensive and inflation's crazy. And, so all of our houses catch on fire. That's our life. Well, mine's going to explode like a, with a mushroom cloud. Yours is going to simmer and, and burn. My wife's is going to be really bright. It's going to be a fire, but it's going to burn itself out quickly. And instead of dealing with the fire, what we're doing is we're going around looking at the end result and mm-hmm. saying, oh, this kid's got ADHD and this kid's got this and this kid's got this. Um, I'll always contend that that anxiety and depression are on the same trend line. They work mm-hmm. recursively together, yeah. right? And you toss in ADHD, you talk in OCD. I think you can distill it down to a body's response to chaos. Mm-hmm. And Matei would suggest that some of that is um, uh, in utero, right? Mm-hmm. If, if a yeah. mom 
is worried about her next meal, if she's got an abusive husband, if he left her because she wasn't fun during her pregnancy, or she's in a war zone, then that baby is going to just be bathing in cortisol and adrenaline yeah. for X number of years. Right? Yeah. I mean, X number of months. And so um, that's not popular to say because then the first instinct is, oh, it's, oh, it's my fault. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's not, yeah. that's not, that's, that's not the solution, but I get this. I get the feeling, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's less of, let's stop, stop treating people as a, as a diagnostic, as a label. Yeah. Stop treating people as a symptom. What if we asked a crazy question? What if we asked this question? What if our bodies are working exactly as they should? And the depression rates and the anxiety rates and the ADHD rates are going through the roof. We didn't all get ADHD at the same time, like mm -hmm. COVID. We didn't all get ADHD. Like our, our genes didn't all switch overnight. What if we created an environment that our bodies were not designed to live in? We created a nutrition system. We created an education system. We, tr we, tr we created a two parents always out of the household system. We've created a world and our bodies are just ringing off the hook there. Right? Like if, if you have one kid that has leukemia when they're four, and then your other kid gets to be four. Your body will have put a GPS pin in that moment. And you will find yourself getting a little more anxious as this other mm -hmm. kid gets to the fourth. That's your body working perfectly. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, It's supposed to be alert for, for danger about your kid. Yeah. What if our bodies are working perfectly, Josh, and the world we've created is insane? Well, again, and this, it's, 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 a, it's a brilliant idea because it is getting more to that root cause. You know what's interesting is I've studied ancient Asian medicine. Mm -hmm is that they, they never gave somebody, you have this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They'd say, you have this out of balance. Mm -hmm. Your body's too hot internally or it's too cold. Mm -hmm. There's too much movement or there's too little movement going on. There's body's too dry or it's too damp. I mean, they would really look at things and say, mm -hmm. listen, you, you don't have fibromyalgia or you don't have depression. You have an imbalance right now of... Uh, you're too active or you're not active enough, mm -hmm. right? And so they would really look at those things. It's a very similar thing to what you're saying yeah. is that, hey, we, we need to rebalance your lifestyle. We need to rebalance your environment. Mm -hmm. And that's really part of the idea. And so, yeah, it, it, fibromyalgia is a good one. What if chronic pain is just your body trying to get your attention? Mm -hmm. And you can go down like a, a, a suburban, a row of suburban homes. They're all going to have different doorbells. Yeah. Right. This one might be fibromyalgia. This one might be anxiety. This one might be headaches. This one might be whatever. It's just your body trying to get your attention. Yeah. And we have, uh, we call it, um, <laughs> that we call it the attention economy. I think that's a very um, elevated kind way of saying it. I think we have the distraction look over here economy. Yeah. Eco an economy designed for one thing, and that is to distract you from what your body's trying to tell you. Mm. Um, I joke often <laughs> that Netflix even took away this motion. They took it away. Netflix is scanning every website that I go to on my router. They know every website I go to. They know how long I stay there. They know every movie and TV show I watch for how long, what I fast forward to, what I pause. They know everything. And so they know me better than I do. And they say, hey, you just sit there. I'm going to start the next season for you of this show. You're going to want to watch. You don't even have to push play. We're starting it for it's you. Wild. And we just go, all right, I'm in. Right. And then I do this and food shows up at my front door and I do this and I FaceTime my kid in another town because I'm in a hotel and that's our life, Josh. And we're like, why am I anxious? Because your body's going, hey, yeah. we're headed for a cliff. That's right. Yeah. So walk me through if, 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 
coming to you now and asking you, hey, if if you had to go through your process of, mm. hey, we need to find the root cause, we need mm. to start to remedy this situation. What are some of those steps somebody needs to follow in order to get themselves out of depression, anxiety, mm. uh, you know, uh, having trouble paying attention? So my contention is um, kind of like someone coming to a doctor and saying, my stomach hurts. Um, I, I remember back in the days when the, when the early days of the nutrition wars, the, there was a, a kind of a, a sentiment that would come around that I loved. And it was, if you go to take your dog to the vet and you say, my dog's stomach hurts, they're going to say, well, what's your dog been eating? If I go to the doctor and say, hey, my stomach's hurting, they're going to give me a couple of tests and they're going to give me some medications, right? So they're not even going to ask, oh, right? Yeah. And so I want to start from a premise of what if, what if your body's working right? Yeah. Let's look at a couple of things. Let's look at these six, six things. And this is just all the neuroscience trying to distill down into a way that, that somebody who's never read a science book in their life can, can understand it. Um, here's just a quick roadmap. You have to start with reality. Because I can look at my life and say, I've got this car, I've got this size house, I've got this job with this salary. My body knows that my marriage is falling apart. Mm -hmm. My body knows that my kids don't want to sit at the kitchen table with me. My body knows my boss has been acting kind of dicey. Yeah. And so um, what is reality? What's the state of things for me? I think that's a place for everybody. You you don't go you be aware, get a blood test. Yes. Yeah. Um, like how overweight are you? Like it's, it's about choosing reality. And you have to know how much our culture is, how swimming upstream that is. Mm -hmm. Our culture does not want you owning reality. It yeah. wants you comfortable. Mm -hmm. And those two things are opposing forces, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and by the way, we do this in every other area. You don't just start running a marathon, right? You got to know how far the distance is. Yeah. You got to know what kind of yeah. shape you're in, right? Yeah. And so this isn't weird. Um, so you're going to do, you're going to, start, you can choose reality. You have to choose connection. And we talked about that earlier. We've just created the loneliest generation in human history. And it's, I mean, we started putting, um, cooking oil in our cars and we're wondering why they're sputtering down the road. They're designed to run on gas. People are designed to run in tribes with people. Yeah. And I'll say this boldly. If your body has scanned the environment and you got nobody, and by the way, you can be crowded in a low, I mean, you can be lonely in a crowded room. Yeah. You and I have both been there. Yeah. You're sitting at a table with people I know love me, that work for me, work with me. And I just want to get out of here because y'all don't know what I'm going through, right? So loneliness isn't about number of people. Um, and loneliness also doesn't account for, I got a million followers on Instagram. That's great data in the front part, in your frontal lobe. That is not soothing that amygdala that knows you got nobody to call in the middle of the night, yeah. right? Um, if your body has scanned the environment and you're not, and you don't have people, it would be failing you if it let you sleep all night peacefully, it'd be failing you because you are responsible for your front, your back, the sides, you're yeah. responsible for the health of your wife, your kids, your home. It would be failing you if it didn't pop open at two 30 in the morning. Yeah. And what do I do? I go to the doctor and say, I, I keep waking up at two 30 in the morning. Boom. They hand me a bottle of hypnotics and say, try this. And then I don't sleep for six months. And then I'm super anxious and I go to my therapist and they want to talk, man. Yeah. Right. See, I, I mean, we just have a solution, a whack-a-mole solution. That's right. And really your body just says, Hey, you're all alone. Right. Um, the third one is choosing freedom. We've outsourced our lives. We outsourced our fantasy life to a bank. Most people in America, a bank tells you what you're going to do tomorrow. Yeah. 
and that, but my boss is abusive. I don't care. You owe me money. Right. Um, but what about, I don't care. You're going to go to work tomorrow because you have a car payment to make on a depreciating asset, right? You, um, your mortgage company is going to tell you what to do tomorrow. Um, and we don't even think about it. Or we surround ourselves with clutter and nonsense and chaos. And we wonder why we're anxious, right? On a body designed for scarcity. Mm-hmm. Now we have everything and everybody doesn't know how to operate in that system. So um, choose freedom really comes down to um, the nerd word is agency or autonomy. Yeah, yeah. When your body knows that you're in the backseat of your own life, it will sound your alarms. Whether that's depression, it shuts the whole system down. Whether that's anxiety and spins you up, it will try to get your attention because you're not in control of what happens next. Um, the next one is health and healing. And that's where you and I have spent a lot of our career, which is, man, most people take better care of their new truck than they do their body. Yeah. Right. And then we get upset that it's not working right, but we never take care of it. We fill it up with garbage. We don't deal with um, our weight issue, whatever. And if you haven't dealt with that sexual abuse, your body's dealing with it every day. Mm, if you yeah. haven't dealt with the fact that your dad left and you're, you're a nine-year-old girl inside of you still asking what was so bad about me that daddy left, if you haven't dealt with that, it's going to, that's going to ripple through your life. And so you have to choose health and healing. You have to choose my buddy, Sal, the Stefano, he's out in, uh, in Los Angeles with the mind pump guys. He told me something once in a private conversation. I've struggled with, I've struggled with body dysmorphia my whole life. And he said something that just shook me. He said, dude, you can't hate yourself to better shape. You can't hate your body and think you're gross and go to the gym and try to work that off. Hmm. He said, that's, that's a jet fuel. You'll, you'll lose your weight and you will gain it all back because it's not sustainable. He said, if you go to the gym because you think so highly of yourself that you're worth an hour and you're worth doing really hard stuff so that your body can adapt and get strong, he goes, you'll do that for the rest of your life. And that was just a shift, right? So choosing health and healing and then choosing mindfulness, which we can talk about all day long. And then the most controversial one I think was, um, choosing belief. Um, if you go back to the great psychological theories of our time, um, the whole idea was self actualization, Mm -hmm. you get this, you do this, you accomplish this, you surround yourself with this, then you can be the shining beacon on a hill. And if you go back to some of those old ones, like Freud and Jung and those guys, we're there, we're actualized. We have everything. And the self was never intended to hold up the universe. And so, um, I think if you look at evolutionary psychology for all of human history until about 150 years ago, people walked outside of their tent and they fell down on their knees and said, dear God, please rain. Yeah. My kids die. Yeah. And now we just turn a faucet and water comes out and we got real arrogant. And so when the body knows it's untethered and there's, there's, there's atheists writing about this. And then there's faith theologians yeah, writing yeah. about this. We just clipped all the tethers on belief. We just cut all the, all the strings and the balloons are out of the barn and the only thing left to worship for a being created to worship is ourself and how I feel. Mm. And now we're chased or we, we just are following a trail of how I feel about things. And I expect you to bend to my feelings and you expect me to bend to your feelings. And that's a recipe for chaos. And so I'm not going to, my family and I are Christian. I'm not going to subscribe that to somebody, What I will subscribe is if you want to live a non-anxious life, if you want to begin to heal, you have to take a knee to something bigger than you and say with open hands, please help. Yeah. And if you can't get there, your body will always know we're holding up the universe. And that's a recipe for mental health challenges down the road. What's huge. Well, I mean, the, the, what you just said ties so into identity and purpose that's and a number it. of things that's and it. you decide that too. Yeah. You know, I, I want to walk through some of the things I took away from what Let's you said yep. and, and yep. Put, yep. Put, put it in my own 
kind of my. No, it's a lot there. Just throwing it all out there. That was good. No, I, I think that it's getting to the root cause. Yeah. And I think the first thing you mentioned, and this is so important, is where am I at now? You know, it's like if you were going to, you mentioned losing weight, or if you were going to run a marathon, where's my starting point? Like where, and, and being honest with yourself, you know, I, I love Dusky, and he, he <laughs> says something to the extent of like, you know what, like you've, you've got to know where you're at now. Uh, and, and most people have no idea where they are. And so I think that's the first thing is being really open and honest about this is where I'm at. The next thing you mentioned was connection. This is so big. We're meant to run in community. You know, you've seen this. I mean, there's so many studies on this in terms of psychology, in terms of like, if, if you want to be successful in your career, get around more disciplined people or in your health or anything. So running with a tribe is just incredibly important. Um, the other thing I had down here was taking personal responsibility and ownership, realizing you're not a victim. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about this locus of control. Like I've got control. I can control the things that at least I can control most. I, I can at least control yeah. myself and my thoughts right. and my actions. Yeah. And then, you know, the healing part, I think, you know, getting in these good habits and rhythms, whether it be eating healthy, caring for yourself, getting to the root of if you have childhood trauma, mm-hmm. don't shove it under the rug. Right. right? It's yeah. like, hey, we got to we got to get it out. Let's deal with it. Let's do what we have to. And then I think the belief thing is so important because what people believe in today, you know, I, I, I tend to, and I'm not the one that came up with this. I heard Tim Keller talk about this okay. and another guy, um, uh, um, Charles Taylor, who wrote a book on yeah, identity. Charles, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he goes through really, there's, there's three types of identity. There's modern, which is all about me and, you know, it's mm-hmm. I there's traditional, which is about the community. And then there's divine, which mm-hmm. is, which is about God. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a sort of idea of like, most people think like, I need to go and find my identity somewhere. Like I'm going to go yeah. and like, oh, t- you know, go to the end of the rainbow and yeah. see where I can find my identity. Oh, my calling as though like the yeah. cosmos hid it from you and you got to find it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's not, that's insane. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was, was a big realization to me is, is that our identities are found in our roles and our responsibilities, but mm-hmm. the meaning we attach to them. So for instance, if like, if your whole identity is based on you and your specialness versus, Hey, I'm a child of God. Like mm-hmm. I, I am connected to God and that's mm-hmm. part of my identity. Obviously there's a big difference between having your feelings about yourself and that right. sort of thing, anchor your identity versus, you know, an all loving God, or even something at least in the middle of those two or, or, or better than self is my community. It's not yeah. all the weight isn't on you. I think a lot of times people think, well, I want all of this freedom to like, I decide I'm what, but, but then it's like, well, all the pressure is then on you. And then it's kind of like this crushing, yeah. crushing thing. Even my buddies who are hardcore scientists, hardcore atheists, and I love them. Our kids play together. They're great people. Even they'll go as far to say, I believe in the birth in life and death and resurrection of nature, right? That I'm going to become part of the soil and a tree is going to grow mm, up. Yeah. But even they are taking a knee to, I'm part of something way bigger than me. Yeah. If you find yourself out on an Island and you are holding up your universe, it will crush you. And I'm just telling you, cause yeah. I've sat with yeah. people who had everything. You can't hold it up. You're never designed to hold that up. And in the weird way, when you anchor into something bigger than you, you can rappel off the edge and do wild, crazy, ambitious things Yeah, because you're actually rooted in. If you're free climbing with no rope, you got to go real, real slow because if one wrong move and you're out. Yeah. But if you're tethered in, man, you can fly off the side of that mountain and be goofy and hit your friend. You can do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You can go way crazier mountains if you're, if you're anchored in, right? That's good. 
That's really good. Well, I think identity has become such a big issue today. And yeah. when you look at these confusion about what gender am I? And, and I mean, there, there, there are a number of uh, sort of uh, things around identity where I think people are really confused. You know, I've even seen this today. When you look at a lot of the, um, you know, whether it's the LGDP movement or the environmentalism movement, which by the way, I'm as in much of an environmentalist right. as anyone I know. Like I own 4,000 acres of certified organic land. Like we build <laughs> back carbon. Like I mean, I am like all in on yeah, yeah. turning this planet into a paradise. Right, right. But, but, you know, I think a lot of people have taken, uh, replaced worship of God mm -hmm. with worship of something else. Right. right. Well, you know, it's David Foster Wallace in that classic, classic, this is water. It's, 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 it's a masterpiece. And if you haven't, it's a small essay, it's a small speech he gave. It's a graduation speech he gave to Kenyon college. Um, and it's such a masterpiece that it's, it's worth reading about a thousand times in your lifetime. Atheist, English major, brilliant writer, probably one of the greatest like fiction writers of our time. But here's what he said. I don't care if you call yourself an atheist. I don't care if you call yourself a person of faith. I don't care who you're following. You were created to worship and don't lie to yourself. Everybody worships. Wow. What he says is if you worship beauty, you will never be beautiful enough. And if you worship money, you will never have enough. And if you worship shiny things, there will always be another object you got to go get. And so I took from that belief is not about grabbing these things. I think the identity movement comes from this cultural notion that you're broken. There's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, that you, like, you're the worst thing that ever happened to you. You are the, like, you you feel bad because everybody's after you. Um, and so you have to create this scratching and clawing. You have to create this self and you're going to have to follow it around because it's not anchored to anything. Yeah, that's good. And I, I think the people in power did that. I think the doctor said, you have this disorder. This is you now. Mm. And you're going to always have to do this. You're going to have to always take this. Somebody's going to have to come get you because you're broken forever. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've seen this. And I saw this when I was in practice. And so many people, especially when they had more severe conditions, I mean, that condition was their identity. I mean, if, if I were to say, hey, this oh, is the top, yeah, you know, yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah. It, it happens a lot and it really keeps them from getting well. And we have a culture that, um, I, I, the culture is problem centric. Like when you and I shook hands on the front porch, if you had greeted me with, hey, what's up? Welcome to this amazing studio space we've got, by the way. My kids are doing amazing at school. I would have thought, and I do this for a living. I would have thought, all right, weirdo. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> but if you had, well, and you didn't, yeah. but if you had greeted me with, hey, what's up? Sorry for all this mess. It's chaotic here. We're, we're moving into this new studios. I'm just, I'm doing, I would have been like, that's my guy. You, we lead problems first and we have yeah. nowhere to say. And I had a friend who was an activist attorney. She was one of my closest buddies. And she was in the court case, in the courtroom for some really significant cases, right? Some, some advocacy cases. And then something came up in our culture and I called her and I was like, all right, I'm with you. Like, I'm all about supporting the people in the margins. I've dedicated my whole career to that. I don't understand this thing. And she said something so powerful. She said, John, we spent so long fighting for X, Y, and Z that over time our identity shifted from, can we just have be treated like everybody else 
it shifted to we're fighters. That's our identity. And I think that's instructive for politics. Mm-hmm. Ask somebody what you're for. No one can tell you. They can tell you what they're against. Yeah. They can tell you who they all hate together. Yeah. They can't tell you. That's so true. They, uh, here's what I really want. Because if you do that, if you sit down and say, I really just want a safe place for my kids to go to school. I really just want there to be less mental health challenges in the country. I want there to be less obesity in the country. I really want a, a, to know that my mother and father who are elderly now are going to have enough money to eat. We all want those things. We're all for those things. We just don't have a, we don't have a cultural psychology for what are we for? So we create identity out of what we're not. And I'm not you. And mm. because I'm not you, I got to go to war. You and I both know enough about psychology that when I declare war, my brain decides uh, quickly divides the world up into us and then that's it. And now it's wartime. And so there's something about, um, taking away labels. I'm not, I, the great, uh, is William Glasser, the great psychiatrist. He, he wouldn't let his clients say I have anxiety. He was a, he was a physician, but he would say you're anxiety. They would say I'm depressing this week. I'm depressing the last six months. And if your wife just passed away, you should be. Your body's working perfectly. Yeah. If wow. you got other, if you if your body's found you're lonely, if, if you've been about to get laid off, you've got all these things. Let's talk about those because your body's trying to take care of you right now. But it was this very active. This is happening to me. My body's trying to protect me in its own weird way. <laughs> Let's get to the bottom of that. That's different than you have depression. You know, you, you, your viewpoints are such an outlier. I know. I, I'm I know. curious, and, and 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 it's it's very much the way I've gone through my health and medical career yeah, in terms yeah. of taking. It's been it's been an outlier, but but I, I'm I'm really grateful for you know there have been so many friends of mine and people I know that have gone to counselor mm-hmm. over the years, and I know it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's my community, man. It's my gang. It's yeah, so hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. Um, in the counseling profession. Um, and by the way, I'm still tied to the professional, this, the, to the, I mean, to the groups, right. To the yeah, state, yeah. state I, I, that's my gang. There is such a pressure when someone sits down, just tell me what's wrong with me. It is way, way easier to say you have this many behaviors over this period of time. You've got this. Well, what's easier for somebody to hear? You've got this diagnosis. There's something wrong with you or. You've got to change your whole environment. You, like you're, like you're not safe in your marriage. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, what am I supposed to do with that, man? You know what I mean? That's really, really hard. Or your parents struggle with obesity. Your, I mean, your grandparents struggle with obesity. Your parents struggle with eating disorders. And now you've got a chaotic mess. No one wants that. Yeah. No, they don't. I don't want that. Yeah. Right. When I was crippled with anxiety. I did not want to hear about my workout program and my need to go make friends. I want to make this dollar amount and I need that promotion. I need you to give me something right now. Yeah. Right. I was all about that. It makes sense. And it's perfect. It's just a faulty, not true story. You know, anytime we've, we've read any studies on success, it's the same thing every time delay gratification, you know? And it's like, I think if people really understood that, listen, if you want to be successful at anything, if you want to overcome any health issue, anything, one of the keys is overcoming, you know, this sort of immediate gratification, taking a pill for it, mm-hmm. getting some sort of numbing, just numbing out. Yeah. Could be Netflix, whatever. I mean, it's something, you know. I, I, the, you've seen the, the diseases of despair literature that the United States, I think we're on year four, maybe five, of dying younger. And yeah, even yeah. even you pull the COVID deaths out, like yep. dying younger, that is madness in the culture with everything. I read on Spotify recently that the number one search term on Spotify is the word sad. 
Wow. Because people are looking at sad songs. They just want to kind of like bathe in it. Just yeah, bathe. That's right. That's our, that's our ethos. That's our ethos is let's sit in the dark. Let's don't look for the light and delay gratification, man. It sounds all lofty. Nobody goes to the gym and takes all the weight off the bar. Nobody does that yeah. because you know, the only way to get stronger is to put more weight on. Yeah. Now, when me and my wife lift, I'm a way bigger guy than her and I'm a, I'm a bigger person than she is. Yeah. So we're going to have different weight on the bar. But what it works the same with your nutrition. And this is the pot talking to the kettle, man. I'm in day four of like a pretty radical transformation. Let's go. It's hard. I love it. It's miserable. Yeah. And it's, I know what's on the other side of this. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to move better. I'm going to look better. All these things. My brain's going to work better. And so there's nothing, zero things good that come quick. People win the lottery go bankrupt. People who um, lose 100 pounds overnight their marriages fall apart because it, it, it messed up the equilibrium of their home, right? Nothing good comes from instant. Yeah. We just have to, we just have to bake that in. Yeah. It's I, true. I want, I want to hit on this healing point that you talked about okay. that, that fourth step, because, you know, it made me think of there, there's this, uh, this quote by Aristotle and he, it, well, this isn't, there's this idea by Aristotle and he basically says, vice feeds vice, virtue feeds virtue. Mm-hmm. And so when you start doing good things at first, may not feel like it, but over time you start to crave them. Like I've sound this, sound this with, with health food. It's like when people start eating healthier, it's like, oh, this doesn't taste as good as what I used to have. But then if I would go and have a Big Mac now, like I, I know it would be, it would taste fake to me. Like it would not taste good. How, how do you, what is some of that process of helping somebody heal, do, helping somebody do what's good for them, even though even their hormone dopamine and all kinds mm-hmm. of things within their brain or tell them, no, I want you to go back to scrolling all day long. Yeah. Um, for me, um, my natural bent is anxiousness. My natural bent is chaos. And my natural bent is slothness. Like just, just, I dream of the day to do nothing. And about noon on my nothing day, I have a headache. I've been slouched around. I feel terrible. I'm grumpy. I snap at my kids. I get make it worse. My wife's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I don't know. It, it is all miserable. So I have to get way up river and I've got to put some hurdles in front of me. And I have to unplug feelings. I have like, we have this weird thing in culture where you have this path, which is your feelings are the only thing that matter. They are data. They are your truth which in and of itself, my truth is an insane statement, but like, um, you are your feelings. And then the counter to that is if you have a feeling, you're a coward, you're weak, suck it up, just start grinding. But I don't hear about your stupid feelings. Yeah. Both of those narratives will kill you. Yeah. Right. They will kill you. So I have to wake up in the morning and know I did not feel like exercising today. And I got to go do it anyway. I know if I stayed up late the night before doing media late into the night and I had been traveling two weeks before I wake up and my seven-year-old daughter comes in the living room with her book on tape, singing some song and got a recorder in this hand. Ah, I don't want to feel, I don't feel like being nice. Yeah. And I got to do the next right thing. So that doesn't matter. And um, some mornings like this morning, I was, we were talking off the air. I hurt myself yeah. the other day doing squats like an yep. idiot. I was trying to hurry and get through the workout and I didn't have enough time and I just did something stupid. Um, this morning I really felt like getting out of bed and going to lift. And the best wisest thing for me this morning was to go through a series of mobility and stretching exercises, yeah. which make me the Texas high school football player feel like I'm doing nothing and wasting my time. 
but it's right and it's good, right? Yeah. So sometimes the greatest act of bravery is go to bed. Sometimes the greatest act of bravery is go work out even when you're tired. And your mission in life is to f- get in tune enough with your body that you know. Um, we all, I, I joke, we, we all made an agreement. <laughs> we all know you can't brush your teeth so great on Sunday morning that you don't have to do it again until Wednesday. We all know that, right? So I'm going to brush my teeth twice a day. That's going to help with bad breath. It's going to help with make me a little more kissable to my wife. It's going to also fend off infection. And then seven months from now, if my wife's like, dude, your breath's bad, then I probably need to go see somebody because that means I have an infection probably. Yeah. Right? I, need to go, yeah. I need to go deal with that. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to put some hurdles in front of me. I'm going to not borrow money just so I don't, oh, I'm not beholden to a bank. Yeah. I am not going to have pornography on my computer. I'm not going to have trash foods in my house. I do. I should. Right. But I'm not going to do yeah. these things. So when the moments arises, I'm even, I, I can't even give into the temptation because it's not here. And um, so I, it's just about creating a life that I want to have, not this unintentional, just bring it on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. You know, one of the, I, I want to switch gears and talk a little about limiting beliefs. You yeah. know, th- this is something that a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot of people, I'd say everybody yeah. deals with limiting beliefs somewhere in their life. It could be I'm not smart enough. It could be, I'm not worthy. It could be, I'm not good at relationships. What are some of the, what is some of your advice and thoughts around what somebody should do to recognize and overcome limiting beliefs? I think there's two strands. One is the stories you were told growing up, the meta stories you were a part of. Um, Over time, those become the stories you tell yourself. You start telling yourself in your own Mm. voice. So, hey, shut up, be quiet. I'm trying to watch the game is a very clear message. You're worth less than this group of professional athletes to your dad, Mm. which is an important message that you begin to tell yourself over time. I'm not that good. Right. I wasn't even good enough for my dad's attention. Right. That's a limiting belief that is parked into your nervous system. So that when someone says, Hey, I need someone to take this. Can somebody step in in this leadership role? I'm not raising my hand. I'm terrible at this. Yeah. My own dad didn't even want to talk to me. Right. That's wired in there. Someone um, sexually abusing your kid. Here's what your worth is. Your worth is utility to me. Right. That will ricochet through your nervous system for the rest of your life. Yeah. Right. Unless you deal with it. Yeah. So there's limiting belief number one, which is true and honest. Um, I think when we call it limiting belief, sometimes we take that on as a character issue, as a moral issue, is, is if you can't overcome it, you're weak. Mm. Again, I go back to your body's pretty pretty good. Um, a lot of that gets wired in your nervous system. Yeah. If it was your job to make sure mom didn't get mad growing up, hey, don't do that. Your mom's going to get mad. Then at nine years old, you know you're responsible for the emotional regulation of the adults in your room. Mm. You're probably going to grow up and become a peacekeeper. You're probably going to grow up and become somebody that a boss looks at and is like, She'll do whatever I say. He'll be the guy that works all day Saturday, all day Sunday, because that's been your job. Wow. That, yeah. And yeah. It happens that way. That's number one. The second one is we live, <laughs> what, what's, I call it like the Instagram-y um, uh, dream big world. Follow your passion. World. Yeah. It's madness, Josh. Um, we become passionate about the things that we're good at. And we become good at the things that we do over and over again that we practice. And for most of us, there's the occasional guru who's really intentional about like, I love this thing so much. For me, whether it's guitar playing, which I've done for 35 years, whether it's exercise, which I've done for 35 years, which all these things, 
it started with somebody telling me, you're going to do this. Yeah. There's stuff I was made to do. Yeah. Following my passion as a nine-year-old would have been a disaster, right? But I joined sports teams and we had to exercise. I joined um, uh, a rock and roll band. We had to practice, right? And so, though, I, and now music's my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Exercise is my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Being a good dad is my favorite thing in the world. But people... It was a part of me growing up. And so in this Instagram, you follow your passion. You just need to think confident. That's not how confidence works. Yeah, Confidence works when you have a bunch of little wins. If I went to the hospital tonight, if my wife called the hospital and they admitted me for major depressive disorder, an episode, I was going to hurt myself, right? And they put me in. They'd give me medication to sleep. They'd give me nutrition and food. And they would let me sleep and wake up the next day and see the sun came out. And then we would start a series of, li- of little wins. I want you just to get up and take a shower today and mm. go back to bed. Yeah. We're going to do that for a few days. Same as PT, right? You're just going to slowly, right. yes, sh- shoulder surgery. You're just going to be able to do this. That's right. That's what we're going to do today. And so limiting beliefs, often you don't overcome them by just chanting in the mirror. Yeah. You come overcome limiting beliefs by, I'm going to get up every day at six o'clock for the sake of getting up at six. I'm just going to do that. If you can't trust yourself, of course your body's going to not believe you when you say, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to do these things, if you're not accountable to you. So overcoming limiting beliefs is dealing with these stories that you bathed in. If you grew up in a Christian home and your parents told you, God's watching you and he's perfect and you're not. And if you screw up one time, he's going to torture you for eternity. Good God, no wonder you can't sit still in church, right? I mean, you come to this like, you got to, Pull the thread on those stories because they're baked into your nervous system. And you have to begin a series of little wins. Nobody's going to come out of the gate and get a PhD in psychology. That's just how that works. It takes years to do that. You can, though, start practicing listening and just saying, thank you for sharing that. You can start. You can start watching people as they interact. You can start these little bitty things over time. Um, My boss is able to give away millions of dollars a year. He's a uber generous guy. I can't, but I can tip the waiter a hundred bucks when I hear him whispering to another waiter, like, Hey dude, I think I'm gonna be able to make rent this month. I can say, I got that. I'm practicing. Yeah. Right. So good. That's how you overcome limiting beliefs by getting in the game and doing a bunch of little things, which you can do over time. You're going to see, Oh, I walked a whole marathon inch by inch and you're going to get in better shape and be able to move faster and faster. And then the next marathon will be quicker and the next marathon will be quicker. And pretty soon these limiting beliefs, they, 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 they're not what they once were. And I'll say this, you and I both know there is no finish line. Yeah. You can be it's like, I'm going to start a business. Yeah. And I need to make $10 million in revenue. You go with you. So you'll make $10 million in revenue and you'll have both hands on the bathroom mirror. I mean, on the bathroom counter, looking at yourself in the mirror and it won't be enough. Yeah. And your body will, it'll readjust for that limitation and be like, Oh, that guy's got 25 million. Are you just going to quit? Yeah. No, no, I'm going to get that too, right? There's never enough, right? It, it just keeps moving. And so I think maybe a third one is having a good finish line. That's good. Like, I mean, I think this is really good because those little wins, they add up. They build confidence, you're saying. They they help with these limiting beliefs. And, you know, I, I want to also talk about, we, we, you and I first started talking about mindset. One of the things I know, as I've, I've heard you say, I've read in your biography is, You've had some challenges in life. You've dealt with things like ADHD. You've dealt with things like anxiety. I shared with you before we started, I had a spinal infection Mm -hmm. and wasn't able to walk for a year, lost 30 pounds, was not able to play and hold my baby girl, like Mm -hmm. lost money. All those things Mm -hmm. happened. And it was a really hard time, but there were certain things that I 
was able to start doing shifting my mindset because I got to the point where I'd never felt the emotion of despair before. Mm -hmm. And I'd felt despair. Absolutely. I'd felt some hopelessness. And I thought, you know what? This is not good for me to live in this state. I know that I've got to make a mind shift here mm -hmm. of believing and hoping for the best outcome. Because mm -hmm. we both read the studies about the placebo effect mm -hmm. and the nocebo effect and how powerful mm -hmm. the mind works in healing. Like we've read about athletes who are told, you will never walk or you will never play again. And two years later, all of a sudden they're scoring the game winning, you know, right, right. touchdown yeah. or yeah. So, so would you walk me through a little bit? How does somebody build up a resilient mindset, a mindset mm -hmm. around hope and grit and grit, just, you know, build a more positive mindset in order to um, overcome trials and tribulations in their life? Um, I, it talks about what you, what you were talking about earlier. Um, I love the way you just mentioned my baby girl, my wife, my exercise, my business, my spiritual and mental health, like all those things got real dark when I was laid up in bed for a year. And the other side of that is you had done the work for your entire life to become a guy that some woman looked at and said, I'm going to hitch myself to that dude forever. Let's make a person together. Mm. We've got enough financial security that if I go down a year, we don't starve. I, so you created this resilient world then you got hit by a bus, right? And your bus in your case was a spinal infection. You gave yourself permission to have a season of black wholeness. Your body did what it was supposed to do because you're a hard charging guy. You're a smart guy. You love caring for people. You love helping. You're an entrepreneur. You want to save the planet. You want to do all these great things. And all that went away. Your body did the right thing because that's too much. That's too much to just like wade through, mm. right? While you're laid up in bed and it's dark and your wife's asleep and your daughter's asleep and just the, the hounds are chasing you, right? Those thought hounds are just going. Mm -hmm. And so your body does what it's supposed to do. It draws the shades. Like I'm going to, I'm going to bring the temperature down inside this body for a season and we're just going to breathe. We're going to feel through this. And then the sun comes out. Yeah. And because you had put the work in up here, you have that resilience to draw on. You know the roadmap for healing. You've sat with too many people. You know the yeah. roadmap for entrepreneurship. So it's already baked in. What most of us do is we wait till the bad thing happens. And then we're like, I need to be resilient. Well, bro, that workout was done a long time ago, right? Many people wait until the bad thing happens. They realize they're not resilient. And that starts them on their journey to, oh, I need to exercise I thought I wanted to exercise for abs. I'm exercising so I can roll around on the floor with my grandkids, mm -hmm. right? I'm doing these things. Um, I'm going to not borrow money again because I was leveraged a lot in 2009 and it all went away. <laughs> I'm going to change how I do money so that when the next thing falls, I'm going to have a checkbook. I'm going to start buying people's houses this next time, right? And so if you can decide I'm going to build these things, I'm going to build connection, I'm going to build a steady dose of reality in my life, I'm going to have a group of men that I trust and I live in the same neighborhood. We're not just all on a text thread from high school. It's still going. But like, we're going to actually get together and be like, how's your marriage, dude? Yeah. And we're going to do that. Then when you get hit in the mouth, you're going to be unconscious for a while. And then you're going to get up and go, I, I got a path out. Even if your path is, I can't even move. Mm. Right? I can't even move. The great Brene Brown says, what you go looking for in the world, you are sure to find. And so um, if you ask me what the most significant finding of uh, psychological finding, if you ask any mental health nerd, they're going to give you a different one. Mine is this. It's the work of Martin Seligman. We believed for eons that some people are bo born Eeyore. Some people are born like, all right. And some people are born like super positive. 
What he proved empirically is that's not true, that optimism and pessimism are learned behaviors. Wow. Which means optimism, optimism and pessimism are a choice. I choose one of those default settings. What does that look like in real life? That dude cuts me off in traffic when I'm driving and it's in like some modded up Honda Civic and he's got one of those, like, I don't know what, house music is coming out. He cuts me off. My daughter's in the car and I grab that steering wheel and I just start laying into him. By the way, he can't hear me. This affects him in no way, yeah. but I start launching into him. That guy, stupid millennials, just trying to whatever, doing drugs. Or he cuts me off. I grab the steering wheel and I immediately let go. And I nod my head and say, dear God, please help that guy get to the hospital before his wife dies. I get to pick that story. Mm, wow. It doesn't affect him at all. It only affects me. I can give myself a stroke and a heart attack and feel powerful for a second and die sooner. I can model for my kid what, how adults should act. And I can lead my body towards a path of empathy and kindness and not bathe in cortisol for the rest of the day. I get to pick that path. Those are all choices you make upstream so that when somebody mouths off at your daughter at, a, at the mall, I've practiced and I've practiced and I've practiced and I can pick my daughter up and say, it's time for us to go. And I can walk out and be under control, right? Um, there's a great, um, I've had opportunity to do a couple of events with Jocko and he's behind closed doors. Jocko is every bit Jocko. I, like I, <laughs> kind of my, my shtick is behind all of the everything these billionaires have or these, these, these go get them, these professional athletes. At the end of the day, just a dad like me. Yeah. And it was about 30 minutes in with Jock and I was like, oh, we're different. <laughs> you're, you're different than me. You've worked 30 years to, to sand that part of you off so that you can go do this, this mission. Right. Um, I'll never forget an interview he gave. He's a world-class jujitsu guy, world-class. He's a multi-year combat Navy SEAL. Plus he trains, like he is a gangster of gangster of gangsters. Yeah. And somebody said, if you're walking down the street and um, you're with your wife and your daughters and that some guy like got in your face, what would you do? He was like, well, I'd reach over and grab my wife's hand and we'd walk across the street and get on that sidewalk. And the guy looked at him kind of funny and he's like, you wouldn't defend your wife's honor? And here's was his answer. If it takes me beating up a scrub on the street to show my wife that I honor her, I have failed her in every way. Mm. And I was like, whew, right? And he said... Only a few people on planet Earth can defeat me in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and they do that for a living, that, which would be an awesome sentence if I could say that. <laughs> I'll never utter that sentence. It would be cool, but, but there was this idea, like, I got nothing to prove. I got nothing to prove to you. I'm not going to jail for you. I'm not going to risk your friend being in a, in a bush over there with a bottle to hit me over the head when I'm trying to. I, I'm not going to risk any of that. Yeah. I'm not going to risk a stupid um, gamble on investing in something I don't know anything about with borrowed money and trying to leverage the gap. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to practice resilience because the storm's coming. They're coming. It's coming. I'm going to practice it. So when it hits, then I'm going to have my season of darkness. And then I'm going to be able to look and find the light because I've spent my whole life looking for the light. So Seligman says, practice optimism, practice it. Like your body does this when it sees the stock market, ask yourself, what if it all works out? Hmm. The presidential candidate that you hate gets elected, at least go, I hate that dude. What if he does a good job? Just maybe, maybe what if he does a good job? You begin to practice it. And over time, your body adjusts that default setting from it's all coming down to, hey, this may work out in my favor. And those are the guys that you and I run with. Yeah. They, 
you know, Hey, we got it. We got to solve a million dollar problem. There's always that guy in the room. It's like, it's a, I got to start looking for other jobs. And there's always one dude. that's like, dude, we're all going to get rich. Right. And I'm like, I want that guy. Well, he's done that 50 million times in his life yeah. for that moment. Right. That's, that's so resilience, good. man. You can't, um, mantra your way to confidence and reliance, self-reliance and resilience. It's something you practice over time. Well, there's, there's a lot of powerful ideas here. And one of those is it's like this, uh, and, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, you, you know, know that all day long. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, starting before you get in the difficult situation, mm -hmm. building up your mindset, building up a mindset of hope and positivity is so important. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think that's just so critical as you're saying it's a choice. The research shows choice. life shows it's a choice. It's a choice. And so you can choose to live with hope and you can, or you could choose to live with negativity. And as you said with Brene, Brene Brown, it's, it's this idea of, you become what you meditate on. If you know, and, and I was in this situation where, when I I had this, I met with this infectious disease doctor, and he said, "Hey, you may be essentially debilitated for the rest of your life." Mm -hmm. And so, part of me went to I could go online and read read about will I be debilitated the rest of my life, or I could go online and no matter what, just read about all the people who had it, who overcame the odds, and really mm -hmm. choose to focus on their no, you know what, no matter what, I'll be walking again, I'll be running again. In fact, I'll be better than I was before. Mm -hmm. And what a story I'll tell. That's right. right? And uh, you've, I know we've all, all the people in, in the leadership business space have heard this narrative, but Baseball players, when they were in a slump, used to go watch the tape of them in the slump. Like, what's wrong with my swing? And what they realized was it was highly self-reinforcing. They got worse. Wow. And now the, the, like the wisdom now is when you're in a slump, we're going to go watch you when you were on a tear. What about your mechanics in this season are different than they are right now? We're going to reinforce it over and over and over. We are, I love that. We are what we meditate on. Um, and I think it's important, dude, just, just to call it out. I don't think we're broken or weak. That's so countercultural. It is. Yeah. I've sat with women whose babies are dead in that next room. That was part of my job. I've sat, I've hugged husbands who are hugging me so tight because their wife passed away. Every one of those conversations I've sat with kids who are on the margins of whatever community they were a part of. They were the wrong color in the wrong community, whatever the thing is. I hear those stories. We weep together. I, I'm, I'm just overcome with emotion with them. We sit and we always land on the, on the same question. And the question is, what are we going to do now? Mm. All of us end up in that spot. What are we going to do now? You open your eyes after four weeks of black hole. Uh, is this really happening to me? I'm Josh freaking ax and I can't get out of my bed. Is this happening? Mm. And then what am I going to do now? Am I going to go down every story that the media ecosystem is going to feed me, telling me that I will never be enough? Or am I going to find those six people that pulled it off? And here's the deal. Yeah. You may not pull it off. Uh, uh, one of my fav favorite psychology quotes of all time is the great Amos Tversky. Um, he was Daniel Kahneman's research partner. Oh, yeah. Um, and Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel, like he's, Nobel Prize, he's savant. But Tversky says, pessimism, I'm butchering it, but pessimism is stupid. Because if what you were thinking about comes true, you experience it twice. Why not focus on the best possible outcome? Do what you can to make that thing come true. And if it doesn't, be sad when it happens. We just spend our whole lives hedging. How many people have you met with over the years just waiting for the other shoe to drop? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what you end up doing is you cash out all the joy you had in this beautiful season because the shoe's always going to drop. 
It's always, your mom's always going to call and say, I got cancer. Your kid's school's going to call and say, your kid's going to jail. Like that's going to happen. That's our life. And, um, we miss out all the good stuff waiting for the bad thing. And here we are. That's so good. You know, there's, there's a quote I love by, uh, the psycho- uh, psychologist CJ young. And he says, a good life and a bad life is determined by how well you walk through the fire. Mm. You know, it's that idea of like, are you walking through with this hope and this grit and this gratitude? Mm. Are you walking through it with pessimism and negativity mm. and just hopelessness? Yeah. And, you know, part of how you just walk through your entire life, which way determines what type of life you're going to have. And the common pushback culturally to that sentiment is, but you don't know what I've been through. Mm. And you're right. I don't. I don't. And I've sat with enough people over the years to know on the fortunate list, I'm really high at the top. And I've sat with a bunch of people who've lost everything enough to know having a comparison game, trying to, trying to have the, the tragedy Olympics is a waste of time. You hurt. I hurt. We hurt. She hurts. He hurts. It's awful. And what are we going to do now? Right. That's where we all end. We all have yeah. that same question. Are you going to hate? Are you going to find a group to rally around and you all hate the same people together? You can do that. You're going to end up with a pile of bodies, yours included. Can you just like have like toxic positivity and just pretend none of this is real? It's all good. Your body's keeping the score. Your body knows it's going to shut you down. Right. And you think it starts with anxiety and it ends up with debilitating chronic pain. I can't get out of bed. And the pain is real because your body has said, you're not listening. I quit or I'm out, right? It'll get your attention or you can choose reality. And in my case, um, I had to go see a counselor. I had to see somebody and I went through a couple before I found an incredible one here in Nashville. I had to regularly have friends, men in my life that I trust. I have experts that I call and I don't know the answer, right? I run a mental health show. I don't know 90% of what I get called on, but I know someone who does, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm not too proud to call. Um, I asked my wife, how can I love you today? I don't say, this is how I'm going to, I ask her, how can I love you today? And um, I tell my kids, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I said that I came out wrong. I was mad at my boss and I took it out on you and that was wrong. Um, it's just walking through life with your hands open, right? Yeah. So that when the moment comes, I can seize it, right? Yeah. That's so good. It's a different posture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, love it. We, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot today. Um, this yeah, I've been all over the place, man. I mean, it's it's been really good. I, I want to last last few things. I do have a couple questions I want to close with before sure. we do that, though. Dude, we can talk about anything uh, you want to. I love. Yeah, it. I want I want to talk about your book. Okay, the anxious life. Yeah. And I think for so many people, they live in a state of anxiousness. We live in a state of, you know, uh, you know, um, I'm worried about this thing going on in my life or, uh, and, and as you mentioned, like, I think the anxious life, even your book, it's not, it's not just about being anxious. It's about any negative emotion mm-hmm. you might be experiencing and how to overcome that. But walk me through mm-hmm. a few, what, what, what is some, what are some of the core principles and takeaways from, from your new book? Um, so the idea is, um, anxiety is just a smoke detector. That's like the chief metaphor in the book. It's just a smoke detector. It's not the problem. It's just letting you know there's fires in your house somewhere. And usually those fires are relational in nature. Your body's detected that you're alone, that your marriage falling apart, that you don't have any friends, that your boss isn't safe. Um, it may be detecting that you're not in control of your own life. The agency we talked about, it may be 
letting you know that, hey, uh, you have lost autonomy, right? It, it, it's letting you know you're not safe. There's danger somewhere, right? Um, and underneath that is we have a culture that says if you feel bad, if you feel anxious, that's the problem to be solved. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. If you, that's like hearing your smoke detector in your kitchen and just racing in there and climbing up on the ladder and pulling the batteries out. You stop the alarm. Congratulations. And your house burns down around you, which is what's happening to us right now in this culture. Instead, I want to hear the alarm in the other room. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to the alarm. I'm going to go at the alarm into it. Um, you know, as well as I like the, the neuroscience of anxiety, if your body identifies a threat and can amp you up to avoid that threat, it wins. It yeah. got exactly what it wanted. Yeah. So it reinforces it. It makes it stronger. And so if you get anxious when your wife drives up and you grab another drink, your body goes, yes, we avoided the threat. And you're going to want to drink more. And you're going to want another drink. Mm -hmm. And if you go to rage when your kid's loud because they're acting like a seven-year-old because they're seven and you go to, oh, it feels powerful and good. But you didn't have to deal with the fact that I don't know how to connect with my seven-year-old. Your body wallpapered over that shame with anger and it felt good and it puts a GPS pin in that and it will go to it every time, mm. right? So the only way to heal from anxiety is to head into it. And I don't want to live in a house without a smoke detector. That's stupid, right? I don't want to not be anxious. I want to create a life. I want to build a non-anxious life so that when the alarms go off, I hear them. I'm present. I'm, I've got uh, a world that is resilient, an anti-fragile world, if you will. And I can go to the alarm and see what the deal is. Now, when my marriage gets sideways, I've been married 21 years to an amazing woman and it still gets sideways. Now, instead of having four months of me pouting and frustrated that she can't read my mind and she doesn't care, respect me. Now on day one, I can say, I think we've got a gap. I think um, we're going separate directions. This may not be the day to talk about it, but I want you to know that I see it and I feel it and I love you. I'm on the same team. And if I've done something, let's talk about it. If I haven't done something and it's just happening, let's talk about it. That's a totally different proposition. Yeah. I'm going to the storms, man. Yeah, it's so good. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, you've you've had great opportunities as I have to be around some really just incredible mm -hmm. people. And, you know, for you, Dave Ramsey, mm -hmm. Jocko Willink, mm -hmm. what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received? Ooh, I got it. Let me tell you what let's it go. is. Oh, yeah. Um. Can I tell you a little story around it? Yeah. So um, I worked in higher ed for 20 years, uh, all 17, 18 years. Uh, I was dean of students and I was a professor, just an all around nerds nerd, right? And the currency at those jobs is first in, last out. And especially as I had huge teams, I had hundreds of people reporting to me, like, you got to be the first in. So when everyone's coming in, they see you and you got to wait till everybody's gone to be last out, right? It was butts and seats equaled competency, right? And then I went to work for Dave Ramsey, bajillionaire, runs this big company. Um, I'm sitting at my desk about two months in, and he has a late media hit at, at about seven at night. And so I'm in there reading. I'm reading journal articles out of nature, right? Just a total nerd. And he pops his head in. He goes, what are you doing here? Everything's buddy's gone. But seven o'clock was an early evening for me. My family did dinner by themselves a lot. And I was like, oh, I'm catching up on this latest mumbo jumbo research article. And he walked in and he looked at it and he said, go home. 
I, as a boss, used to tell my people that all the time, you need to go home. And they would know, that's cool, but you also gave me a report to do today, a do today, this do tomorrow. So cool, I'll go home when I get done with what you told me to do today. And I said, I will, I will. And then he kind of turned. He kind of got in my line, my eye line. And he said, go home. And here's the piece of advice. He said, if you're no good there, you will be no good here. Go home and be present with your wife and your kids. And I realized in that second, I don't know how to do that. Dude, I'm 40. I did not know how to do that. I did not know how to be a dad from 5 p.m. until 8 p.m. I knew how to waltz in at 7.45, eat dinner standing up, and be the fun, cool dad. Or the, I heard you didn't turn in an assignment, dad. I did not know how to be the 6 o'clock grumpy kids, tired wife, kicking a soccer ball, bored out of my mind, dad. I didn't know how to do that. And so the last several years has been an exercise in, Hey, if you're going to have a parenting show, maybe you should learn how to be a parent in your own house. So great. I've had to learn a set of skills I didn't have. Yeah. I wasn't a jerk. I wasn't a bad dad. I didn't know how to do it. Yeah. So I had some skills I had to learn. But it started with, if you're no good there, you're no good here. For every entrepreneur, every business person, if your relationships aren't whole, you will crash and burn. Or you'll win and you'll look around and there'll be nobody. Um, I remember getting the first time I hit number one bestseller list and the, the head of publishing handed me a cell phone. We were in a car on a book tour. He handed me the phone and it said, had the book title said number one. I was like, oh, it's great. And Dave calls me instantly, like right there, calls the phone. And that's just who he is. And he's like, yeah. oh, congratulations. And so he cheers. I call my wife and she's like, all right. And then I call my mom and dude, Josh, I've got some of the greatest friends on planet earth, the best writer that guys. But in the course of writing the book and then getting the book out and then getting on book tour, it had been six months since I talked to a lot of them. I went back to the hotel and I sat there and I had nobody to call. I had nobody. And I realized, oh, this is how, I just remember thinking, oh, this is how this happens. This is how this happens. I got a number one book and I got nobody to celebrate it with. Congratulations, John. Way to go. You win. And I didn't win anything. Right. And so you're either going to crash and burn or you're going to get there and you're going to be all by yourself. And then there's just going to be you and your little golf clap. And so if you're no good there, you'll be no good here. Invest there so that you can come solve some of the world's vexing problems that we all need right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's the best advice. That's I, great. Off the top of my head. It's really good. What's your final piece of advice for anybody who's watching this, who's saying, Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with some things, but I, I want to break free. The final piece of wisdom, I would say, um, and I like people to imagine like we're sitting across a table eating nachos, like we're just, <laughs> we're just hanging out, um, is you're probably not broken. Your body's probably working exactly as it should. Maybe not. Maybe there's a, like a, an acute pathology that you need to go get, get taken care of. And thank God you live in the United States. It's some of the greatest acute pathology help in the world, but you're probably not broken. Probably your body's working exactly as it should. What if we were aware and curious and we started an adventure to figure out why is my body trying to protect me like that? And um, that's the piece of advice. You're, you're worth being well and you're worth being loved and you're probably not broken. Let's start there. That's good. Yeah, that's so good. Thanks, man. 
Well, thanks for sharing your wisdom today. Dude, thanks for hanging out. And I love it. This is great. I love talking, you know, I love talking psychology. I yeah, love talking about how, to, how people can experience a breakthrough. I want to encourage everybody to check out Dr. John's podcast. You can just, if you go to YouTube, just search Dr. John Deloney, you'll find him on there. And one of the things I love about his show is it's a lot of it's a call-in show. And it's all call-in. Yeah. yeah, it's all call-in. So you can call in, do his show. Ask him your questions if you have questions for him there as well. And uh, again, really grateful for him coming on today. And want to say, hey, thanks everybody for watching another episode of The Growth Lab, where we cover the science behind how to grow. Hey, if you're not subscribed, make sure to subscribe here to the channel. Thanks so much for your comments. Thanks so much for the shares. Thank you so much for being part of the community here. And praying you guys have a blessed week. Thanks for watching. Mm -hmm.